Hey friends, and welcome to the All Sorts Podcast. I'm your host, Desiree Nielsen, registered dietitian and resident food nerd around here. And it's time for our first solo episode of season three. By popular demand this week, we're going to talk about whether supplements can actually help with stress. It's actually a topic that's pretty near and dear to my heart because my toxic trait is piling more work on myself than is humanly possible and constantly scrambling to do it all. I mean, awareness is the first step, right? I remember when Eat More Plants came out in 2019 and I turned 40 right after. And I pledged to myself that in my 40s, things were going to be so different. I would make more space for fun, for rest, not hustle so dang hard. And then the pandemic happened. I wrote two more books. Yep, that's right. I just turned in the manuscript for my fourth book a couple of weeks ago. And if you're thinking to yourself, didn't good for your gut just come out like yesterday? The answer is yes. And now things are definitely going to be different for sure. If you're new to my solo episodes, let's talk about how this is going to go. Plan of attack. I start with a quick segment about a few of my favorite things right now. Then we move into the topic of the day, which is supplements for stress, and close with a community Q&A. After you listen, if you loved it, I would so appreciate if you share the episode with a friend you think would love it as much as you do. We're a really small podcast, and every single share or review or subscribe means so much to me. Amazingly, we've passed the threshold of 55,000 downloads, and my sights are set on reaching the 100K milestone real soon, and you can help us get there. Okay, PSA over. Let's talk about what I'm obsessing over right now. So I was just in Toronto for the first time post-co, and my friend Catherine Herringer, the editor of Maple Magazine, told me about this place called Othership, and I absolutely had to check it out. For context... Catherine is also the reason that I started plunging myself into the freezing cold ocean in 2020. So what's Othership? Othership is a wellness space that guides you through cycles of cold and heat, but like inside. They've got a really gorgeous cedar sauna and four cold plunge tubs. They kind of curate an experience with scent, like they melt essential oil snowballs onto the sauna rocks and music. And it was actually pretty bloody fantastic. It's only in Toronto right now, and I'll warn you, it's pricey. It was very much a treat to myself on this trip, and I've been doing cold plunges for a couple of years now, but I've never had the sauna cold plunge experience, and I have to say that it's awesome, and I will probably go back the next time I'm there. Okay, next up is something called the future of butter. I tried it at the Canadian Health Food Association show, which is this huge trade show where all the like natural and organic brands in Canada go to show off what's new. And I swear, the future of butter is the best vegan butter I have ever eaten. Like even better than, dare I say, Miyoko's. If you know, you know. Like Miyoko's, it's a properly cultured butter made from cashew milk and coconut oil. But they have this truffle butter that I would probably just eat by the spoon. Like all those really good quality vegan butters, it's not cheap. So I'll still use melt for like every day. But once they make it out to Vancouver, I will be buying their butter for like special occasions, like when friends come over for dinner. Finally, obsession number three, the bear. Are you watching? Have you watched this show? If you are at all interested in like restaurants and food culture and chef culture, I highly recommend that you do. 
as soon as this FX show, it's on Disney Plus here in Canada, like everyone who was food adjacent was talking about it. It's a drama and it follows this chef who's come home to Chicago after running 11 Madison Park in New York because his brother has left him the family sandwich shop. It doesn't sound like thrilling stuff, except that it so viscerally captures the chaos and messiness in a restaurant kitchen. He clearly has PTSD from his chef life, and sometimes it's actually really hard to watch how disordered the culture of this shop is. And as soon as it was done, I immediately wanted to watch the whole thing again. So if that intrigues you, check it out. Boom. Those are the things I'm in love with right now. I'll be sure to share the links in the show notes. And as always, none of those recommendations are sponsored. So let's move on and talk about stress and supplements. First things first, a little disclaimer and a little reality check. Even though nutritional counseling is part of my work as a dietitian, I am not a psychologist or a counselor. But even so, as someone you are trusting to give you a little free advice on the internet, I have to start by telling you that nothing you take from a bottle will erase the effects of stress from your life. Nada, zip, zilch. Chronic stress is really harmful to your mental and physical well-being, and you can't just pop a pill, keep living full tilt unchecked, and make the downside go away. Like, as much as you can, the best thing you can do to address stress is to take concrete steps to mitigate it. A few of the things that I do, prioritize sleep because sleep is recovery time. Like, have screen down hours. I try not to look at my phone before my kids leave for school, and I put it away by 8 or 9 p.m., I also try and get some movement most days, usually outside. It doesn't have to be much, like 15 minutes is better than nothing. Oh, and also saying no is something I'm getting really good at too. However, I'm also a realist. And as someone who struggled to raise two kids while building a business over the last decade, like sometimes we don't actually have a choice to minimize stress. We don't always have a choice to say no I can say no more often now because I said yes to everything for literally years. If I had the money to hire like a huge team to delegate my work or like to housekeepers and nannies to help me run my home life, maybe it would have been easier to do less, but that's not my reality at all. And so I have to admit that like there have been times when like ashwagandha felt like it was saving my sanity. So there you have it. So I'll climb off of my soapbox now so we can actually get down to brass tacks on supplements for stress. When I asked you on Instagram, you wanted to know about adaptogens, calming herbs, and mushrooms. So I thought this would all fit kind of nicely tied up with a bow in the package of supplements and stress. And we're going to talk about five supplements that I'm most familiar with that fit these categories. Yes, we're going to talk about ashwagandha. We're also going to talk about rhodiola. Both of these are two adaptogenic herbs. We'll talk about reishi, a mushroom that's traditionally used to instill a sense of calm. And finally, chamomile, which is a nervine herb, and L-theanine, my go-to chill pill. Let's start with the adaptogens. Probably by talking about what the heck an adaptogen even is, Adaptogens are a broad class of herbs that are intended to bring you back to balance in times of stress and potentially protect you from the harmful effects of stress. 
This is a really important distinction because I see people calling everything associated with stress an adaptogen, and that's actually not correct. Like lavender is not an adaptogen. It's a nervine herb that is taken with the intention of calming down. And adaptogens can have other activity in the body too. For example, helping you feel calm or giving you more energy or even augmenting your immune system. And my first love in the adaptogen world absolutely is ashwagandha, whose name means smell of the horse, which gives you some indication of how it tastes. Ashwagandha or withania somnifera is thought to help ameliorate the effects of stress on mind and body. We know quite a bit about what is in ashwagandha, like what are the chemical compounds in this herb. And research tends to focus on a group of compounds called withanolides. And this is typically what is standardized in extracts. So you'll, if you turn over the label on an ashwagandha bottle, it will typically tell you like the milligrams of herbs and then the percentage of these withanolides that are standardized within the extract. And there is actually some research on it. So in preclinical trials, so that means like doing things in a Petri dish or doing things in animal studies. I hate it, but that's how it happens. It's thought that ashwagandha may have anti-anxiety, antidepressant, and immunomodulatory, meaning like it alters the immune system effects. It's also thought to be antioxidant and anti-inflammatory. Like, sounds awesome, right? Like, yes, check, check, check. Give me all of the things. Early human trials also suggest these anti-anxiety effects and potentially even positive outcomes on C-reactive protein, which is a marker of chronic inflammation. And of all of the adaptogens, ashwagandha is actually the best researched, although I have to be honest with you, even as I say best researched, it's still just a handful of small human clinical trials. One 2019 trial in the journal Medicine, which was a double-blinded, randomized control trial, like the gold standard of research, found that after taking 240 milligrams of a standardized extract known as Shodan for 60 days, morning cortisol levels were actually lower than people taking the placebo, which is pretty cool. Hamilton anxiety scale scores also decreased by 41% over 60 days. Also very cool. And just a heads up, like links for any of the research that I quote here will be in the show notes. So you can actually review the studies for yourself. Don't just take my word for it. Do the work, read some. And if you are interested in this, I find that ashwagandha tends to have a very grounding, calming effect, which is great for those who tend to get like really amped and anxious when stressed like me. You can find ashwagandha in powders, pills, tinctures, and blends. 600 milligrams is the dosage that's most often used in the research, but as with the trial that I just mentioned, lower doses may actually be supportive. However, on the other side of it, the ashwagandha powder that I took offered 1,250 milligrams per serving, and I did find that it produced a notable difference for me, and it tended to work relatively well for the people in my practice who tried it as well. All right, so that is ashwagandha. The other adaptogen I'm pretty familiar with is rhodiola rosea or golden root. It is traditionally used to enhance physical and mental performance. Rhodiola is thought to provide an anti-fatigue effect and is actually a slightly stimulating adaptogen in times of stress. So you can see already two different adaptogens, two different effects as like ashwagandha is not stimulating. So if you're already buzzing with anxious type stress, rhodiola might not be for you. 
The compounds of interest in rhodiola are rosavins and salidrosides. So salidrosides may actually activate antioxidant enzymes in the body. Yes, that's true. Your body actually has its own antioxidants inside. Yes, we eat them, but you also make them. So that's pretty cool. However, a 2021 systematic review published in the journal Evidence-Based Complementary and Alternative Medicine found that many of the 39 clinical trials were actually of poor quality. Honestly, it happens way more often than you might think, which is why when someone quotes like a single trial to prove their point, if you don't read that trial, like sometimes the trials are actually just garbage. And so you're like, oh, well, there's like research for that. Honestly, the person sharing it may not have even read or been able to understand whether or not the trial was good quality either. So it continues. However, another 2022 narrative review in the journal Molecules found that rhodiola is potentially anti-fatigue based on the current evidence and may also enhance mental and physical performance as well as alleviating stress and having neuroprotective effects. So on one hand, we have one review saying, you know, the clinical trials are not great. And on the other hand, we have someone else saying, yeah, but the evidence is still pretty compelling when you look at it from like a high level. Take with that what you will. And so for the person who gets just flat out exhausted in stressful times, rhodiola might be right for you. As with ashwagandha, you can find rhodiola in pills, powders, and tinctures, and all of the things. And dosages quoted tend to be in that like 250 milligram to 600 milligram range. And this is interesting, so listen up. Whereas the story with ashwagandha is that You know, lower doses seem to work, medium doses seem to work, higher doses might even work. With rhodiola, higher doses may actually be ineffective, according to the evidence breakdown I read on examine.com. The other thing to note with rhodiola, don't take it with other medications because it might mess them up. So before we move on, a couple of other things I want to say about adaptogens. The first is that they are part of traditional medicine systems that are very much deserving of respect. And it makes me really upset when practitioners dismiss these plants as wellness hooey. For example, ashwagandha has a rich history of use over thousands of years in Ayurvedic medicine. It is not some new and trendy thing. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, you know, we have wellness with this tendency to sort of whitewash the history from these traditional medicines. And So I really want us to have a huge appreciation and awareness and learn all that we can about these adaptogens, to be cautious with them, particularly if we have any pre-existing conditions or we're on any medications. I wouldn't go taking an adaptogen unless you're working with an integrative practitioner who is evidence-based and really understands the risks versus the benefits. The other thing that I want to share is a little bit of fine print. Do not take adaptogens if you are pregnant or trying to become pregnant if you are breastfeeding, if you're on any sort of pharmaceutical medications, or you have an autoimmune condition. Because ashwagandha, for example, has been shown to increase immune activity, which if you have an autoimmune condition is not good. It has also been shown to cause miscarriage. And it is not for anyone with hormone-sensitive prostate cancer as it can augment your testosterone levels. So don't get cheeky with me. Make sure you get the green light to experiment with these powerful herbs from your healthcare team before you give them a go. All right, next up, let's move from adaptogens to mushrooms and talk about reishi. 
Reishi or Ganoderma lucidum is a mushroom that comes to us from traditional medicine systems across China, Korea, and Japan. It is known as the mushroom of immortality for its use in promoting longevity. It's also thought to have a calming effect on the mind, which is why I've included it here. There's actually a decent amount of preclinical research on reishi, so we know a lot about what is in it, including beta-glucans, which are carbohydrate chains known as polysaccharides, which are very common amongst functional mushrooms like reishi. They interact with the microbiome. They also interact with the immune system. And we also find in reishi compounds called alkaloids and triterpenoids. And it's thought that reishi is antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, like are you seeing a pattern here of all the plant things that are good for us? (laughs) Although mushrooms are fungi and not plants, but I digress. It is thought potentially and has been used as potentially supportive of the liver. However, a little caution there because there have been case reports of toxicity to the liver too, as well as supportive of the immune system where data has shown that reishi can activate natural killer cells in the body. Because we're here talking about stress, let's talk about reishi's effects on the brain. Reishi is thought to be neuroprotective, meaning protective of the actual like nervous system tissues itself, and also nootropic, which means that it produces some sort of like cognitive improvement and like cognitive functioning or focus, all those kind of good things. So those, the neuroprotective, the nootropic, but also it's thought to be calming. And all this sounds very good, but what we don't have is a lot of human clinical trial data to confirm how these compounds impact us when we take them. There have been some small clinical trials looking at cardiometabolic health, but the outcomes weren't great. There was also some data looking at use in those with cancer, and some caution has emerged because there have been some negative effects found. And because reishi can increase immune function, again, it's not a good choice for those with autoimmunity, and it may actually affect how you metabolize drugs. So if you're on pharmaceuticals, be wary. So we have this really longstanding history of use for reishi. We know that there's a lot of potentially really good stuff in it, but the clinical trials don't really pan out. We don't have a lot of clinical trials to go on. So what does the dietitian advise? The dietitian advises that This is not something to self-medicate with without talking to your healthcare team, like most herbal products. If you're working with an evidence-based practitioner who is well-versed in traditional medicine and using reishi in particular, then talk to them because they know you best. They know your medical history. Talk to them about whether it's right for you and also talk to them about the dosage that might be right for you. In the literature that I looked at, it seems to hover like somewhere between the 1500 milligram to like six gram or 6,000 milligram amount. Powdered mushrooms, uh, which are essentially just like the dried mushroom itself are going to be a lot stronger than the tinctures. But like I said, get the okay and the green light from your healthcare team first. Fourth on our list is chamomile, which is a nervine herb that many of us are already pretty familiar with. And I really love chamomile because it's easy to use. It's gentle, even for kids. And yes, it's actually pretty relaxing. I started growing chamomile in my garden for the first time. And it's also just such a like beautiful, sunny, happy little plant. So it's kind of cute. If you want to give make yourself a little herbal tea garden, you can absolutely start with chamomile. It's relatively easy to grow, but it needs a lot of hot sun. We had a very delayed, dark, cold, rainy start to summer. And the chamomile did not come up until it got much, much hotter. So 
I have to just like pause for a second because I've used the term nervine a couple of times. So let's actually start there. Nervines are a class of herbs like passionflower, lavender, and chamomile that act upon the nervous system itself. And in the case of the three herbs I just mentioned, that action is to produce a sense of calm in the face of mild stress. Early clinical trials suggest the chamomile might actually do just that. In one 2019 systematic review with meta-analysis, chamomile was found to be effective at improving sleep quality, but not insomnia, and generalized anxiety disorder, but not current state anxiety. It's not a ton of research, but it is something, and considering that chamomile is quite a gentle and safe herb, really interesting if you want to try and incorporate that into your routine. It's a very lovely herb to experiment with. Like I said, you can grow it in your garden. You can drink it as many of us probably are already drinking it as a tea. But a couple of things to note. The first, that if you have allergies to ragweed, you might also be allergic to chamomile. And it is also high FODMAP for all of my irritable bowel syndrome friends. Finally, it may increase the effects of sedatives, so be really mindful for how you use it. Okay, so finally, I promised five, and we are at number five, which is L-theanine. I want to talk about L-theanine because it's something that I have used for a long time, and anytime I mention it in the community, it gets a lot of interest, so I think it's worth having a bit more of a discussion about. It is very different from the other four things that I just talked about because it is not an herb. It is an amino acid, but it's a non-nutritive amino acid. Amino acids are the building blocks of protein. However, L-theanine is non-nutritive because your body doesn't use it to build proteins, which is kind of interesting. L-theanine is actually found in matcha green tea, where it opposes the effects of caffeine to help produce that calm alertness. So like if you switch to matcha from coffee because you're like, matcha doesn't give me the jitters, That's why it's the L-theanine. L-theanine has the ability to cross the blood-brain barrier, and it may increase relaxing alpha waves and augment neurotransmitters like serotonin in the brain. L-theanine is very much, and I'm I'm seeing a lot of L-theanine supplements coming up, particularly targeting stress and anxiety, and it's very much touted as promoting relaxation, sleep, and anxiety relief. And here I will say that also that is why I use it. And yet, dun, 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 there is almost no research to support this usage. So let me tell you a little story. I'm very much a proponent of the basics of wellness. And one of those basics of wellness is sleep. The research tells us we need seven to nine hours of sleep every single night. And if you like I, or a parent, you're like, heck no, who the heck gets that much sleep? I certainly didn't for more than a decade. And it was really, really causing me a lot of problems. I became increasingly anxious. My resilience to stress, and I put myself under a lot of stress, my resilience to stress was really compromised. And I had a lot of issues, and I still do have a lot of issues with sort of TMJ and just like really, really clenched strong muscles in my jaw and in my face. And so in trying to go down the line and get some support for it, going to the GP, she sent me to the pain management clinic. The pain management clinic sent me to this specialized chiropractor who like works with Olympic athletes. And, and I was 
was like going through this work and it was really helpful, but it was only helpful for a couple of days. And it's like, I can't, I can't come and get treated once or twice a week for the rest of my life. That just doesn't work. He asked me, well, how are you sleeping? And I was like, well, like, I'm not like, it takes me like 90 minutes to fall asleep. It's usually a pretty fitful sleep. And then I wake up feeling exhausted. Not so good. So he recommended magnesium. I was like, magnesium doesn't actually work for me. I, you know, I take it before bed and doesn't really do much. So he recommended taking magnesium with L-theanine. So I took 400 milligrams of magnesium glycinate with 200 milligrams of L-theanine. One of the things I love about this is that these are amino acids and minerals. Like this is just, it's not an herb. Like this is stuff our body knows what to do with. So I'm like, okay, sign me up. Nothing has ever worked before, but I'll give it a try. Within a week, I was sleeping eight hours a night. It changed my life. Like no word of a lie, it changed my life. So as a dietitian, you know, I'm always, before I make recommendations, I'm thinking, okay, so what is the potential risk? What is the potential benefit? Is it safe? Do we have research to show if it's effective or not? And so like where that whole sort of matrix nets out with this magnesium L-theanine combo is that we know these substances are safe. Children can take L-theanine as well because it's an amino acid and a mineral. We know that there's not a ton of risk depending on the magnesium you take. So some forms of magnesium like magnesium citrate can rumble or loosen up the bowels. Glycinate is less likely to do that. L-theanine, there is not a lot of challenges with safety. I'm going to talk about that in a second, but generally I'm like, okay, so we don't have a lot of research to support this, but we do have practice-based evidence and anecdotal suggestions that this might work. So if this is right for you, I say, give it a month, try it. Does it work for you? Great. Keep doing it. If it doesn't, all right put it away. So that's sort of where we net out with this one. So what about the research? Because believe me, I looked. And so what I found was one 2019 randomized control trial. That's good. At least it's good quality research. It was published in the journal Psychiatric Research. And it found that when used alongside an antidepressant, so not on its own, but an antidepressant plus L-theanine, that your Hamilton anxiety scores did not improve dang it, but sleep did. Hmm. Interesting. Another 2019 trial published in the journal Nutrients found that 200 milligrams of L-theanine modestly improved stress-related measures. So like I said, that is not a lot to go on. It's not the hard sell. But if you're curious, particularly around winding down at night to allow your body to sleep, talk to your doctor or dietitian. Maybe it's right for you. Because it is amino acid, like I mentioned, this is something that we're going to worry less about in terms of safety profile, and the research confirms this. However, it must not be used in those undergoing chemotherapy or anyone on medications that alter neurotransmitters like SSRI antidepressants. If you're going, yeah, but that clinical trial used L-theanine with antidepressants, well, you're not going to do that without talking to your doc, okay? (laughs) And then... Also, no one on blood pressure lowering meds should be taking L-theanine, again, without talking to your doctor because there might be an issue. So there you have it. Now that we've talked about the what, we have to talk about the how a little bit because I wasn't going to like talk to you about all these supplements and not really give you the lowdown on how challenging it is, A, to sift through all the supplements on the market, 
but also how much smoke and mirrors there are in the supplement industry. Because one of the biggest challenges in working with plant medicines and supplements is that as plants, how they are grown, how they are processed, and the dosage they are provided in are going to affect their efficacy. Especially as the trend for adaptogens and herbs grows, you're going to encounter a lot of products with like little more than a sprinkle of fairy dust that honestly won't do much. I have used ashwagandha products that have had a huge positive effect on me and others that did nothing. Was it the quality? Was it the dosage? I don't know, but that is the reality. Like a great example is like everyone likes to make fun of Moon Juice's brain dust, like all of those like expensive dust and Gwyneth Paltrow's $200 smoothie. I get it. I'm not a fan of a lot of the stuff that she does and puts forward, but Moon Juice's brain dust, I actually get a real lift from it. And it was one of my first forays into adaptogens. Like brain dust is why I was like, why is this working? What is in this? And that's where I started sort of like learning as much as I could about these medicinal herbs. So how do you know? Well, you try it. You buy a product that clearly labels standardized ingredients. Some extracts are actually clinically tested and you want them in a dosage similar to what we've talked about in the literature in this podcast. So are you going to take something with 10 milligrams of ashwagandha? No, no, you're not. That's not enough. The other thing that you have to do is you really have to introduce these things into your life systematically, one product at a time for at least four weeks, but maybe up to 12 weeks, and then assess how you feel. No different. Do not rebuy. Does this sound like a lot of work? It is, but it will save you from buying a whole bunch of bunk in cute packaging. Believe me, I am very, very impressed and allured by like cute packaging I speak from experience. And so if you're wanting to look into these herbs on your own, be a bit cautious of even some more evidence-informed websites like Healthline and Cleveland Clinic, because as I was looking through them for this podcast, they really tend to overstate things. Honestly, you know, we talk about doing it for the gram. Well, they're doing it for the Google SEO. So be a little bit careful there. I do have some options for you though. Sloan Kettering Memorial Cancer Center has a really good database called About Herbs that is written for both consumers and health professionals. So, you know, choose your poison. And then examine.com is an ad-free science-backed website that gives an overview of the research on supplements. You get a little bit for free. You have to like sign up for a membership to get like all of the data, but even the things that they give you for free are pretty good. They give you a pretty good taste for whether or not something is bunk. Okay. I feel like we've covered the biggies here. So now onto the community question. What can we do for stressed out kids? Kids really need our help as parents and caregivers because they live in a very different world than we did. And they're little energy sponges that are deeply impacted by our stress and then the stress that we put upon them. I'll echo what I said at the top of the episode, like the most critical things you can do have nothing to do with supplements, like creating calming evening routines to prioritize sleep, making sure your kids get time for daily play, and also that screen time is minimized in an age-appropriate way. And from a supplement perspective, there's a couple of things that you can talk to your practitioner about. Don't just hear it on this podcast and go, I'm going to buy it. You need to talk to the practitioner who knows your child best. 
So talk to them about offering L-theanine, which as an amino acid, as I mentioned, is going to be a safer option. Chamomile also works really well for kids. Watch out for allergies, but brewing a chamomile tea, sweetening it with just a touch of sugar or maple and offering it as a relaxing evening beverage, like what a great way to sort of like introduce that into a nighttime routine. Lemon balm is another herb that can be prepared as a tea for children too. Well, friends, that brings this episode to a close. I am so looking forward to hearing what you have learned from this one and what questions you might have. Be sure to pop on over to our Instagram at the all sorts pod so we can keep the conversation going and be sure to let me know who you would like to hear from next on the pod. I work two to three months in advance, so your suggestions will help me plan content for the new year. Thank you so much for continuing to tune in to the All Swords podcast. And if you love it, why not take a minute to share it with a friend, hit the subscribe button, or leave a star rating. All three are totally free ways to support the work we do here. Costs you nothing means the world to us. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the All Sorts Podcast, which is produced by myself and edited by Brian McCalman. And we live and work on the unceded and ancestral territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, Stolo, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Until next time, be well. Be well.